And if you turn in your uh, Bibles to Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3, and this evening we're going to look at verses 1 uh, to 12. So I'll give you just a moment to turn there. We all know uh, what it is like to get ready for something. So, for example, if you're getting ready uh, maybe to go to a posh dinner... Uh, You might put on uh, a tuxedo or a a nice frock or something like that to get ready to go uh, and look the part. If you're going swimming, you know that you're not going to get very far in the swimming pool if you forgot your swimming costume. Or if you're going walking, you know that you need to remember uh, your walking boots and to check the weather forecast. That was important for us yesterday. We were going to go on a really nice walk, nice views, but when we checked the weather forecast, we realised we weren't really ready to go. If you're entertaining at home, you, you tidy, or in our case, hidey, everything up and get the mess away so it looks presentable for when people arrive. But what about if you're going to meet God? How do you get ready to meet God? If he was coming, what would you do? How do you get ready? And that is exactly what tonight's passage is all about. We're going to hear a preacher telling people to get ready because the kingdom of heaven is near. Now it's worth asking before we begin, what, what is the kingdom of heaven? Uh, sometimes, in, in other gospels especially, it is called the kingdom of God. Sometimes Matthew uses the kingdom of God. Uh, most of the time he uses kingdom of heaven. Uh, they're the same, uh, the same thing. And put simply, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of God over his people. It's the rule and the reign of God over his people. So right now, uh, God rules and reigns over his people who are part of the church. It's a, a spiritual kingdom. So the kingdom of God right now is not a physical kingdom. It's not somewhere where you can get a passport and get on a plane and go to. It's a spiritual kingdom. But there is a not yet element to it. That is, in the future, uh, Jesus, our king, is returning And he's going to come, and every one of his people from all of history are going to dwell in a new heaven, a new earth, which is a physical place where Jesus the King will rule and reign over his people in a physical and real place. Now the Bible teaches us that this is not yet, but it is at hand. You may have heard uh, or read even on our our doctrine, uh, statement of doctrine, it says that we believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. That is, he could come at any time. So in that sense, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's now, it's not yet, it is at hand. It's all of those things. And so, we must be ready now for the kingdom of God. So this passage that we read this morning, or this evening rather, is not just for those who were around at the time waiting for Jesus to come the first time. It is for them, but it is also for us. Because the kingdom of heaven is near. Back then at the time of Matthew's gospel, there was an expectation that the Messiah was coming to set up his kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament. And the hope was all the more because they had another 
kingdom, another empire that was ruling over them, the Romans, who had treated the Jews at times very harshly indeed. Life was hard, and the longing for the great kingdom of God to come, where justice and righteousness and blessing reigned, was palpable. They longed for it and they expected it because God had not spoken for hundreds of years and they were waiting for the Messiah to come. Now Matthew's Gospel clearly presents Jesus as that Messiah, Jesus as King. We've seen it in chapter 1 with his history. He's the son of David and he's the son of God. We've seen it with the Magi paying homage to Jesus. We've seen it in the hatred that Herod showed Jesus, and today we're going to see it in the way that he is heralded as the king by John the Baptist. And John the Baptist has quite a simple message in many ways. How do we get ready for the kingdom of heaven? How do we get ready to meet God? Well, in one word, repent. Repent. So let's read what he uh, says uh, in Matthew chapter 3 and verses 1 to 12. In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe has been laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is God's word. And it begins by saying, in those days. Well, in those days refers to the time when the last chapter ended, and that was when Jesus was called a Nazarene. There's been silence, really, in Matthew's Gospel uh, over the last 30 years since the accounts of his birth. Luke gives a small account of his childhood, an incident, but the overall picture is one of 30 years or so of silence. But actually, the silence from God has been for hundreds of years. Since Malachi finished prophesying, the people of God had not heard any new revelation from God. Now, there's been the announcements of his birth, uh, of the birth of Christ, but that was to a few people, nothing on, the, on a great scale. But here in this chapter, John the Baptist arrives on the scene and begins to preach in the wilderness in Judea. And the word 
preach here, it means herald. And it is to give a message from the king to the people. And John is the last, if you like, of the the Old Testament prophets, the last one to speak from God before the Messiah arrives to establish the kingdom of God. John the Baptist is, if you like, he's a, a hinge in between the two testaments. He straddles like, both sides to prepare the way for the Messiah to come. And in order for the king uh, to be ready for the king, there is a summons that John gives, and it tells us what we need to do. And it's the radical call of repentance. Now, everything about John the Baptist was radical. He was a, a radical man. He lived in the wilderness, which actually, if you think about it, is a strange place for a herald to be, isn't it? If you were going to herald some big news, you would think you would go to the city where all the people were. But John the Baptist was in the wilderness. Why? Well, because in the wilderness it is where the prophets were. They had prophetic overtones. Moses and Elijah were both wilderness dwellers. They were the two great prophets, if you like, of the Old Testament. They were wilderness dwellers. In the wilderness was where, in the Old Testament, people met with God often. And the wilderness was separate from the world, which is exactly what his message called people to be. So the place where he went was radical, but but so was his message. His message was a call to repent. Look at uh, verse 2. This was his sermon. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, what does repent mean? Well, it means to to turn around 180 degrees. But it's more than doing so intellectually. This is more than a change of mind. This is a radical transformation of our person. It starts in the mind. We change what we think about, about God. But it goes into our emotions and then into our wills. In other words, it results in us living differently. We are transformed people. We don't just think differently. That thinking differently results in a transformed life. We turn from sin and we follow God. So John is saying that the kingdom that you've all been waiting for, it is near. It is on the way. And to prepare for it, you need to turn from sin back to God. Now that the king of the kingdom is God, and God is perfect. So you can't have sin in his kingdom, and so it needs to be dealt with, and it begins with repentance. This is how you prepare to meet with God. Now John's role (coughs) was to prepare the way for the king to come. Now look at verse (coughs) 3. It says, This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. At this time, if a king was going to come, there weren't roads like we have and armoured vehicles. They would have to come on bumpy roads in chariots where uh, I'm sure they were secure, but they wouldn't have been a comfortable ride. And for when a king was going to come, they would send their servants out beforehand to smooth the road. They would get rid of anything that would make the journey uncomfortable or dangerous for the king, lest they damage themselves in their chariot as they went uh, to visit wherever they were going. If the road wasn't prepared, then the king simply would not come. Now John is calling people to prepare their hearts 
for Jesus to come by making the path for him straight through repentance. Now verse 3 is a quote from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. And in Isaiah, Israel uh, has been being rebuked for their sin. And they've been punished with exile away from God. But as we come to chapter 40 of Isaiah, God begins to talk about the return from exile and the restoration of God's people. And the culmination of this, the great hope, is the kingdom of God coming. And Isaiah says that before this takes place, there will be someone in the wilderness calling people to prepare and get ready. And Matthew tells us that here is John. And John is the one that you've been waiting for, the one in the wilderness that's preparing the way for the king. He's the one Isaiah was talking about. And repentance is how we prepare for the kingdom of heaven coming. It's always been the case. In the Old Testament, you can read places there where the prophets tell people to turn from their wicked ways back to God. Uh, one verse uh, that came, uh, comes to my mind is in Psalm 24, verses 3 to 4. It says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. Does that describe you? Do you have clean hands and a pure heart? No? Then repent. Radically change direction and turn to God. Now John himself is an example of this. If his message was radical, then he embodied it, didn't he? Look at verse 4. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist, his food was locusts and wild honey. Well, why did John live this way? Now, in one sense, it was because he practiced what he preached. That is, you would listen to a radical message from someone who was obviously living it out. He just looked the part, didn't he? But something more is going on here. And to illustrate it, I'm going to give you a little quiz. You don't have to call the answers out, but you can do it in your minds. If I was to be standing here, and I had a red cape on and a big S on a blue shirt, who would I be? I'd be Superman, wouldn't I? If I was to be standing here, and I had a bat on me and a black suit, you would know I was Batman. If I was wearing camel hair and a leather belt, you might think I was dressing up as John the Baptist, but in these days, before Batman or Superman, if someone dressed in this way... It said, prophet, prophet. Everyone would know that John the Baptist was saying he was a prophet. And specifically, he was just like the prophet Elijah. Elijah was an Old Testament prophet. And like John, in 2 Kings chapter 1, he seems to appear out of nowhere to prophesy to God's people. And he's described like this in 2 Kings chapter 1 verse 8. He had a garment of hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. Sound familiar? John the Baptist was just like Elijah. And in the last prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi, in chapter 4 and verse 8, God promises to send Elijah to prophesy again before the Lord comes. And here Matthew is showing us that John, he reminds us of Elijah. He's sent by God. He's in the wilderness. He's calling people to repentance. He is the one that was promised before the kingdom of heaven comes. John the Baptist is given to us by God as a sign pointing clearly to Jesus, 
to tell us that he is the king who brings the kingdom. Jesus is the king. And John is, is heralding what was promised in the Old Testament. It was said that John would come. He came exactly as was promised. And he proclaims the king is coming and the king comes. And we'll see that next week. We can be sure that when God calls us to radically repent, which is what he does call us to do, he calls us to turn from sin to Jesus Christ, that he's calling us to do something that is trustworthy and true as we turn to it. So, in other words, God, everything he says comes to pass. His word is trustworthy. We don't turn from sin to something that we cannot rely on. John the Baptist shows that God does what he says he will do. And as he calls to repentance, they look at John and they say, yes, God has done what he says he will do. God is reliable. I can turn to this. I can trust this. And John's, his, his whole life was a sermon. He, he lived out what he preached. His call was simple but radical. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And the message is the same throughout the New Testament. The message of Jesus, as he preached, is repent. The apostles in the book of Acts call people to repent. The, the epistles written to us, all through them, tell us, repent. And throughout the history of the church, preachers have called people to repent. Because the kingdom of heaven is coming. It is near. And so if that's what we are to do, then the question is how? We're told what to do, repent. How do we do it? Well, that's what we see in verses 5 to 10. We see the right response of repentance. And the first how is in verse 5. God was, was clearly uh, speaking through John. It was obvious from his dress to his words. And he had a great impact. Look at verse 5. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Huge crowds went to him. They went to the wilderness. They were drawn to the message and went out a good number of miles to hear John preach. They went to hear him because John had the word of God. John had the word of God. And that's the first how of repentance. Repentance seeks and hears the word of God. Without the word of God, we won't see what we need to repent of. We won't need to see what we need to repent to. And if we close ourselves off from God's word, then repentance simply will not happen. Repentance seeks and hears the word of God. But in verse 6, we see something else, the, the second how. In verse 6, it says, confessing their sins. Repentance confesses sin. Now, we're not told whether they did this in public. Certainly, there would be a public general acknowledgement of sin. But confession to, of sin to God is a must. We must see our sin, which means to agree with God, and we tell God that we have sinned without excuses. And we, we confess it to God. We tell God what we've done. That, that's what repentance involves that. It seeks God's word, and it confesses sin. And then verse 6 continues with saying that they were baptised by him in the river Jordan. Now baptism is where someone is immersed in water. And in this case, that was the river Jordan. And it was an outward sign of an inner transformation, that a cleansing has taken place in a person's life. 
They'd heard God's word, they'd confessed their sins, and they committed to following God. And the baptism was how they publicly declared that they were cleansed of sin and would live the life of repentance that they'd committed to. But more is going on in baptism too. John was preparing people for the Messiah to come. And so baptism also was a public declaration of allegiance to the king who was coming, Jesus Christ. And when he came, these baptized folk who were following John turned and they followed Jesus. John, uh, we will see later, lost loads of disciples because they followed Jesus Christ. Their allegiance was to him. And as they were baptized, they were identifying with a new king. And that's the third how of repentance. Repentance identifies with a new king. It's a change of allegiance from sin to Christ. And the same is true today. Baptism, in and of itself, does nothing but it publicly tells others that we identify with Jesus Christ and are following him as our king. But the baptism that John was performing was something new. Later on, uh, we see that some people acknowledged that it was from heaven. And to go through this baptism and identify with the coming king, you had to accept you were a sinner. They confessed their sins and they were baptised. And this was a major problem for some people. And we're introduced to these people in verse 7. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now these two groups of people appear a lot in the Gospels. And they're always uh, opposed to Jesus. Although we do see individuals from those two groups uh, following Jesus... But for the most part, the Pharisees and the Sadducees oppose him. Now before we understand John's rather strong reaction to them, we need to ask, who were they? And they may have heard of them, and you may think, well, yeah, they they were just opponents to Jesus, but who were these people? Well, as the Old Testament closed, lots of things happened in between the Old and the New Testaments. Israel was ruled by successive rulers, including the Greeks. And at the time of the Greeks, a group arose who were called the Hasidians, which means pious ones. And they were a group who were united about hating the foreign culture, but they were divided over other issues. So they hated the way that the the Greeks were influencing and infiltrating Jewish life. And they were united about that, but over lots of other issues, they were split And they split into lots of different groups, two of which are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the larger of the groups and more popular. They were known for their zealous keeping of the law. They believed that the Old Testament was true, but it wasn't enough. What would happen for it? How do you know exactly how to keep all of the laws? And to, to answer this question, they created what was called the oral tradition, which was a whole heap of other laws, like fences, so that if you didn't break these fences, you definitely wouldn't break the law in the middle. They took the heart out of it, and everything was about what you do. They were separatists. They avoided contamination with anything or anyone that would break their oral traditions. But they were popular. They were popular because of their piety, and they were popular because they hated the Romans as well. And this was different to the other group, the Sadducees. They were more liberal than the Pharisees. They didn't subscribe to the oral traditions. 
In fact, they didn't believe in any books other than the first five books of the Old Testament. And they didn't even believe in a resurrection of the dead. Which means everything was about the here and now. So they based their whole life around what they could get now. It was all about power. And they based their life around the temple worship, which was where the religious power was. And they made fortunes out of the religious trade in the temple. It was the Sadducees who Jesus upset when he turned over the tables of the money lenders. And they also were closely aligned with the Romans so they could have political power. Now John calls these two groups here to repentance. And for the Pharisees, it was of their pride. <clears throat> and for the Sadducees, it was of their power. They were the things that were needing repenting of. The Pharisees they wanted to call everybody else to be like them. They thought they were the best. They had to repent of that. The Sadducees, they extorted people. They made money out of people. They had to repent of that. And like all false religions today, pride and power, they're still the same, aren't they? And judging by John's reaction to them, it doesn't seem that they came to the banks of the River Jordan to repent of these sins. Some think it was for baptism, that it was so popular that they didn't want to lose the support of the people, but more likely it was for surveillance to see what was going on. And John welcomes them in verse 7. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was, baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? No, that's not a nice welcome. It's definitely not on the welcoming committee job description. But John sees these two groups for what they were. Vipers, who are, which are deceitful snakes. In fact, vipers, uh, they can lie still on the ground and look like sticks so that you would go and pick them up. And when you pick them up, they would get you with their venom. They would bite you. And they were venomous snakes. And that was like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They, on the outside, they can, they can seem religious and good and, and harmless. But really, John's saying, they're vipers. They're venomous snakes. And then John uses an illustration he would know from his time in the wilderness. Because snakes would hide sometimes in the bushes in the wilderness. And if a fire would, would come up, they would flee away in a group. And John talks here about coming wrath. And it looks at them as scurrying out of their holes. And he says to them sarcastically, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? In other words, you're not here to repent. So it wasn't God who called you here. What are you doing here? You see, the problem with this group was that they didn't know what repentance was. They had no, uh, no thought of turning from sin and allying to a new king. Because it would ruin their pride and it would take away their power. But John tells them what repentance means clearly in verse 8. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. You see, that's the, the, other, um, fi the final how. Repentance produces fruit. Uh, it, it, repentance, it begins in the mind as we hear God's word. It enters our hearts and we realise our sin and confess it. It responds in the will of, of baptism as we ally ourselves with a new king, but the result is always fruit. It's always a change in behavior in the way that we live. Without a transformed life, then the listening to God's word, the confessing of sin, even the baptism have done nothing for us. 
Repentance produces the fruit of a transformed life. And for the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that would mean stopping their lifestyles of pride and power, but they relied on something else for their salvation. Look at verse 9. Do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. They relied on the fact that they were descended from Abraham. That was how they thought they were saved. Now, for our ancestry, for better or for worse, has no bearing on our salvation. Being baptized as a baby, being from a Christian family, a lifetime of attending church, none of those things can save us. We have to acknowledge that we are sinners and turn from this to God, trusting him as our king, trusting that Jesus has died on the cross to pay for our sin and following him as our king. And John derides their false sense of security by probably pointing to the stones that were on the shore of the river and saying that God could raise children of Abraham even out of those stones. You see, Jesus is coming. And if there is no fruit, then there's been no work of salvation in your life. And that's what verse 10 teaches us too. It says, The axe is already at the root of the trees. In other words, that the kingdom of heaven is coming and it's bringing judgment with it. Only those who are genuinely repentant are welcome. And genuine repentance is shown through the fruit it produces. If there's no fruit, well, John says, every tree that does not produce fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. You see, as Christians, we should be excited about God's kingdom coming. Yes, because we're going to be with Jesus. But for those who do not repent... The kingdom of God means judgment. And it's imminent. The axe is already at the root of the tree. And if you are not producing fruit fruit of repentance, you'll be cut down and thrown into the fire. How do you know that you are ready for the kingdom of heaven to come right now? You're producing fruit. Producing fruit. Whilst we all perhaps know we can't rely on our parents to save us, many do rely on professions of faith that were made years ago. And say, so, well, that's what it, that, that, I, I prayed a prayer 20 years ago. I haven't been to church since, but, but I prayed a prayer. No, John says, produce fruit. Produce fruit. Keep following Jesus. Keep pressing on. Keep going. So we've seen what we need to do, repent. We've seen how we are to do this. And finally, we see why this is so important. You see, John has mentioned about fire of judgment in verse 10. And this judgment is coming when the kingdom of heaven arrives because not everyone will be welcome if they have not repented. And this is why John highlights, finally, the real need of repentance. You see, John, uh, he is... Uh, what you might call a a hellfire and brimstone kind of preacher. He tells of judgment to come. And you can imagine him uh, in the Jordan or around the Jordan pronouncing God's judgment, dressed in camel's hair. He was a Nazarite, which meant he never had a haircut. So you've got this man with long hair, long beard, camel hair, leather belt. I mean, he looked hardcore. And he's preaching this, this judgment to come. I mean, it would have been a, quite a sight to behold, wouldn't it? But God used him to show that repentance is needed because the wrath of God is very real. 
Although John is called the Baptist, it is not his baptism which is actually the main focus of his preaching. His baptism is the outward response, but something more is needed. And that is why the main focus of his preaching is Jesus. And he talks in verse 11 of a superior baptism, something better. Look at verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now John probably would have looked powerful, looked um, impressive, if a bit strange. But he's saying, Jesus is coming. And repentance is needed, but when we turn to Christ, something more happens than a mere symbol. There is a need for repentance because we turn from sin to Christ, but when we do so, Christ gives us a baptism greater than water. We receive the Holy Spirit and fire. You see, baptism means immersion. And when we turn to Jesus, we're confessing our sin and giving our allegiance to him as our king, then he immerses us in the Holy Spirit, who is the third person of the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit comes and lives within us. And the fire talked of here is the fire of purification. It's like immersing metal in a high temperature so that it melts and the impurities disappear. You see how much more powerful this is than water. This, this, what John is doing is picturing what Jesus will do, but what Jesus says is so much greater. So much greater, in fact, that John, the greatest preacher ever, it seems, isn't even worthy to do the lowliest job of all, which is what a slave would do. The lowest slave would carry the sandals of somebody. And John says, I'm not even worthy. With my baptism, it doesn't compare. I'm not even worthy to carry Jesus' sandals. You see, sin is the problem. Sin is what separates us from God. And when Jesus comes, he saves us from sin. He dies on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. And when we repent of sin, we turn from it to Jesus and give our allegiance to him. He gives us the Holy Spirit so that we can produce fruit. You see, none of this repentance is on our own. God gives us what we need to live for him. He gives us the Holy Spirit. You see why it's so much greater than what John was saying. We receive the Holy Spirit and the fire of purification. It, it can be painful, it's, it's hard, but God is working in us to make us more like Jesus. And then we come to verse 12. You see, we need it. We need this baptism. But verse 12 tells us the whole world needs it. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John uh, uses an illustration here of the, the threshing floor. And the, the threshing floor was in, the, in a field. <clears throat> and in the field where they were uh, harvesting wheat, when the, they, they were in the field place, uh, a threshing, make a threshing floor, which was a, a circular piece of ground that they would uh, harden. 
they would uh, put it, uh, grind it down so it was a hard piece of ground. And at the end of the harvest, the wheat would go onto the threshing floor and they would have a, an ox or uh, some animal that would uh, pull block, big blocks of wood over the grain and it would separate uh, all the bad bits, all the, uh, the, the kernels and the dirt and the grime away from the, the actual wheat that they want. And at the end of that, they would get a fork and they would throw it up in the air and the heavy wheat would fall to the ground and the rest of it, the bad bits, the chaff, if you like, would blow away in the wind. And John is using this as an illustration. He's saying that those who are not following Jesus, those who do not repent, are like the chaff that is blown away and afterwards it's collected up and it is thrown into the fire. This is a different fire from verse 11. Verse 11 is the fire of purification for God's people. Verse 12 is the fire of judgment. And with it matching other descriptions in scripture, this can only mean hell, which is where all go who reject Jesus as king and do not heed this call to repent. Hell is described here as unquenchable. That is, it is, that is, it is never ending. Never ending conscious suffering as people pay the penalty for sin themselves rather than let Jesus pay it for them. And so the call of John the Baptist is so very urgent, isn't it? The call is repent because the kingdom of heaven is near. This is near. This is near. It's strong stuff that John preaches. But what mercy there is that he warns us of the danger ahead. And he gives us the opportunity to do something about it. So I say to you tonight, if you are here and you have not turned from sin and given allegiance to Jesus as king, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. As I conclude, I want to just apply this to our lives. I think... um, as we read this passage, it, it, as Christians, it can be a little bit like a pair of old slippers. Uh, we, we know what repentance means. We know what we should do. And so, nice and easy, we put on our slippers and we carry on. We might think, well, nothing new has been said tonight. Well, let's challenge that assumption for a moment. First of all, let us worship the God who has brought us salvation. You see, there's a difference between John's baptism and the baptism that we do as New Testament Christians. You see, John's baptism, when he baptized people, they were looking forward to the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. They were looking forward to Jesus coming the first time. He hadn't arrived yet for them. They were looking forward to this baptism of the Holy Spirit. But when we're baptized... We look in two directions. We look backwards at what Christ has done on the cross for us. And at the moment where we give our lives to Jesus, he gives us the Holy Spirit and fire. You see, we receive that already. We, as New Testament Christians, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's a wonderful thing. We are saved by what Christ has done for us. And we can worship him. And we can read of him in the the Bible and see what he has done. This was all what they were looking forward to. 
But also, like them, we also look forward. We look forward to when Jesus comes again. We look forward to the day where all of our sin is gone, where we are totally purified, where we are like him. And we will spend eternity with Jesus in heaven forever. Let's worship the God who has brought us what these people were looking forward to. Salvation can be so familiar that we forget the amazing grace that God has and will show us. And we'll look at that at the Lord's table. We come and we remember what God has done for us. So worship God for salvation. Secondly, let us remember that repentance is twofold. Let me explain what that means. There is a, a moment for most of us where we come and we accept Jesus Christ and give our allegiance to him, perhaps for the first time. And we turn from sin and follow him. It's a, 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 something we, 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 that happens to us for the first time. But allegiance to the king is something we need to wake up and give every single day of our lives. Repentance is an everyday thing. Every day we need to wake up in the morning and we need to raise our flag and say, this is my king. I'm gonna, I want to give allegiance to this king, Jesus Christ. Because every single day, there are a whole host of others that call for your allegiance. Decide now, I'm going to give allegiance to this king, to Jesus Christ. And perhaps consider tonight, in what areas do you need to be repenting of right now? And finally, let us be like John in proclaiming the message of salvation boldly to our world who so desperately needs to hear it. We've seen here the consequences of sin. We've seen here how John tells it as it is. We've seen him rebuking uh, apathy and, 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 and pride and power and all those things. We need to be the same, boldly proclaiming the gospel. As we look at the life of John the Baptist here, we see that he rebukes us for our apathy, for our overcautiousness, for our reluctance to perhaps look a bit different. Uh, we, 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 we tend to, at least I grew up in a culture uh, where Christians were wanting to be seen as normal. John the Baptist shows us, no, <laughs> you don't need to be normal, you don't need to be totally weird. <laughs> um, I mean, I've never been normal, but John the Baptist, we don't have to dress like him, but he does at least tell us, we've got to stand out for Jesus. And as we see later on with John the Baptist, we've got to do so regardless of the consequences. Let me close with these words. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Are you ready to meet with God? We're going to stand and sing as we close before we come uh, to the Lord's table. Uh, First of all, we're going to sing uh, Hear the Call of the Kingdom. Uh, Then we're going to have Uh, communion together and then we're going to sing a song of commitment at the end uh, to Jesus Christ our King. So let us stand and sing, hear the call of the kingdom.